Thank you for joining us for another episode of Baker Hosts Ad Nauseam, a podcast series focusing on new and trending advertising issues with an emphasis on the FTC and the NAD. I'm Amy Cotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. We're once again joined by Amy Mudge and Daniel Kaufman, two partners from Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team. Together, they have decades of advertising experience and approach advertising issues from multiple perspectives. On today's episode of Ad Nauseam, Amy, Daniel, and their special guest, Randy Shaheen, also a partner on Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team, wrap up their deep dive into the FTC's recent health products compliance guidance document. This is the final episode in the three-part series, and today they'll move away from the science and discuss how the guidance approaches a few different issues, including qualified claims, endorsements and testimonials, and traditional use claims for health products. Without further ado, welcome to Ad Nauseam, and let's turn it over to Amy, Daniel, and Randy. Thank you so much. This is Daniel Kaufman, and I am delighted to have everyone join us again for part three of our trilogy, looking at the FTC's new health claims guidance. Now, part three, sometimes the best part of the trilogy, not always, but we will try to make sure that today it is a helpful part of the trilogy. We're going to make this a little bit, or a lot less, I should say, about the science. Science is really important, but the guidance document is also really helpful for insights on other issues, on what kind of claims you can or should be making. So we're going to do a deep dive into some other aspects of the guides. And we've got our special guest, Randy Shaheen, our wonderful partners here today. And before I turn it over to Randy to talk a little bit about qualified claims, I've got a question I've been wanting to ask you for years, Randy. Who is your preferred captain? Picard or Kirk? So, Daniel, that's a tough one. I have to say, I loved, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I loved watching the show that had William Shatner going up into space when he was 90 years old. It just amazes me, the man can do that. But I am right in the middle of streaming season three of Picard, and I'm completely hooked and enjoying all the old cast slowly being reunited with Picard. So I, I got to go with Picard. My choice as well. I'm enjoying the new series as well. And with that, let's talk a little bit about qualified claims. All right. Sounds good. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about whether the health claims guidance is kind of restating old stuff or maybe putting a new or a different twist on some concepts. And I do think with qualifying claims, the FTC has maybe ratcheted up things just a bit here. The Palm Wonderful case is a great example of the FTC dealing with qualifying claims in the past. And Palm Wonderful had a lot of language that we see in a lot of claims about you know, preliminary results, promising studies, initial studies, et cetera, the use of the word may. The FTC found that those weren't just qualified claims, that, that they were actually promising a benefit. But in part, the FTC relied on a lot of other contextual things around the use of those words, things like talking about millions of dollars being spent on studies and other ways in which they said Palm kind of drowned out the use of words like preliminary, promising, initial, et cetera. But I think in the health claims guidance, the FTC kind of goes one step further and suggests just using those words all by themselves, saying that a study is preliminary or saying that early results look promising. The health claims guidance suggests 
those words aren't neutral, that people will interpret those words to mean that the product actually works and the product's going to, to have a benefit for you. Now, the FTC doesn't rely on any consumer perception studies here, so companies can always challenge that and present evidence to the contrary. But the FTC's view seems to be those words are too positive. Now, they don't come out and say, what do you have to say to negate that? But clearly, they want you to say something much clearer that these promising preliminary studies don't actually prove that the product works as advertised, which is a pretty tough thing for a marketer to do. The other interesting thing about the guidance here, and this kind of really repeats itself throughout in terms of different kinds of disclosures, right? You're thinking, well, I'll make a disclosure. I'll have a disclaimer that says that the studies don't provide you know, firm evidence. They're not definitive evidence about efficacy. In the health claims guidance, the FTC talks a number of times about disclaimers being prominent and conspicuous, and we're all used to that. But they really kind of put down a marker that says the disclaimer has to be in the same font and size as the claim itself, which really would kind of revolutionize how disclaimers are presented. We're all used to maybe it's not mouse type, but at least it's smaller type. So if the FTC really follows through on this notion that when you disclaim something or qualify something, it needs to be in the same font, it has to pop in the same way, that would really be quite a sea change. Well, Randy, that is very different. I know we'd seen some cases that suggested on packaging, putting a disclaimer on the back of the package was not going to cut it, that if the claim was on the front, the disclaimer had to be on the front. But you're reading these new guidance as saying this applies much more broadly. Yeah. I mean, one of the examples that talks about the nasal strips and snoring says you'd need to qualify the claim that the strips won't treat sleep apnea, which obviously is a, a much more significant problem. But when the FTC talks about the disclosure, they say that you need to have a disclosure immediately next to the snoring claim in the same font size as the claim and in black print on a white background. Almost like uh, for those folks who smoke or have seen some of these tobacco warnings in other countries or even the warning label, the Surgeon General's warning, right? It, it almost looks like the kind of disclosure or warning you put on a tobacco product. Well, I'm going to talk about something decidedly not sciency, which is testimonials and endorsements. But Randy, first, let me ask you, do you agree that this guidance is truly the death knell for results not typical as any kind of disclaimer, be it clear and conspicuous or otherwise? Yes, absolutely. If there was ever anybody that still wondered or had any doubt about whether results not typical might still fly, I think this guidance makes that quite clear. And so what you need to do instead, if you're showing a testimonialist who has an amazing yet truthful reaction to a product, and that's not something that you as a company know other people can expect, the asterisk results not typical needs to be replaced with the expected typicality results. We certainly saw that discussed in the last iteration of the testimonial and endorsement guides, but I think reiterating it here is really important. Of course, another option is simply to have testimonialists talk about their experiences that are typical, and then you don't have to bother yourselves with whether you need something like this or not. But I do, I am excited to talk about testimonials and endorsements. I did notice, Daniel, you didn't ask me who my favorite Picard was. I think probably because you know I have nothing at all to say about that. But I will say that which of the costumes do I decidedly prefer? That would be a resounding vote in favor of the awesome, hip 60s mod outfits that they wore back then. Those were particularly wonderful. Totally agree with you. Yeah, they were the sassiest. The modern one might have improved a lot of stuff, but not on that. 
All right, so other things with testimonials and endorsements. The FTC was quite clear that any claim that a testimonialist makes has to be one that the company can support itself. Essentially, that real patient user is a vessel for the company. And whatever they promise about the product has to be something that the company could say in the absence of having a testimonialist. One of the things that we know from top to bottom is that health claim ads love to have doctors, love to have people in white coats, love to have pictures of of shots, sometimes lab vessels and other laboratory equipment. This guidance was pretty clear that pictures like that imply that doctors have been involved in the, certainly in the creation of your product, or maybe even that your product has been clinically tested. So you want to be very careful and judicious about how you use what we'll call medical imagery, because that might imply that you have an expert or doctor endorsement, whether in fact you do or not. Another thing to take a hard look at is any kinds of before and after photos. We know that a claim can be made in pictures, a picture's worth a thousand words, any kind of doctored photo or enhanced photo, or certainly no use of filters, but even Zoom photography or other things that might amplify results are quite suspect and will be looked at. And I guess, Amy, now we have to worry about AI-generated photos. That will be interesting when we see a case down the road raising that issue. I'm not even sure if I want to go there, Daniel. That's a little bit scary. But if you want to make things a little bit less scary, if you're engaging with the FTC, I got to tell you, the most significant issue on the science that I saw during my time there was just the mismatch between the science and the product that was being marketed or how it was being marketed. And I can't tell you how many times you would review the science and you'd see, you know, some science that looked decent, but the claims were going beyond what the science would support. And that was pretty common at the FTC. And sometimes it was a dosage issue. The product that was being studied was 1,000 milligrams and the product being marketed was 10 milligrams. Sometimes there's that sort of dosage disconnect. Sometimes it's sort of multi-product formulations. You've got a product that's tested that has five different ingredients and your product has two of those ingredients and an additional one. Again, you need to make sure that the science matches the claims and the products match as well. So again, if the product involves 500 milligrams of vitamin C and you're just selling a different kind of vitamin C that's also 500 milligrams, that should be fine. But it's once there is this differential. And the other part of it, of course, is even if you're selling the same product that was studied, for example, if the study was a weight loss study, and it involved not just a supplement, but also diet and exercise, you have to make sure your marketing claim is also talking about the diet and exercise component as well as the supplement. When doesn't a weight loss promise involve diet and exercise? That's what I'm waiting for. Uh, Surgical intervention, surgical intervention maybe. (laughs) Oh, okay, well that and your magic cellulite cure that I'm also still waiting for. But I think this matching of the claims and the science is really important. And and it goes beyond even these kind of dosage and ingredients, which probably should be intuitive. Where I've seen companies go awry is they've got a good study, but it's on a pretty limited population. And going back to our weight loss example, you're studying weight loss of a product, but you've used only obese subjects. 
And are those, even if the results are good, are those the kind of results that you can extrapolate and use to make a claim to market your product more broadly to anybody who might have a few pounds to lose? Yeah, that's a great point, Amy. And you're right. You can't in many of those situations. Sometimes you can, but it depends on the specific study, the population at issue. But if you're studying a a population that's obese, that has to be clear in the marketing materials that that's who was studied. You just can't make that assumption. Now, there are other areas where there may be a broader implication that you can go for, but got to look at it carefully. Well, that we see this at NAD a lot when a competitor is looking to poke at science. And one of the criticisms I see a lot is, well, this was done in Asia or this was done in Africa. How can this possibly be used to support claims in the U.S.? To me, this is one where the lawyers have to be a little bit humble and say, we don't always know about this. And that's when you get an expert to say, hey, this is a claim about teeth whitening. Are people's teeth in Africa or Asia similar to people's teeth in the U.S.? If so, that's probably good. And geography is not going to be a limiting factor. But that's where I like to look for what I'll call a bridge or a scientist to come in to to really explain to the FTC in their expert opinion why a study that looks more narrow can be used more broadly. And that's certainly what you're going to need after this articulation in the guidance. Yeah. Daniel, are there any other examples you can think of where you have seen in cases of advertisers with good science, but their claims just go beyond that science? You know, it's funny you mention that, Amy, because that is what you never see in an FTC complaint. So, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about stuff that was non-public, but you're talking about the things you don't see at the FTC. But that does happen. You know, look, the FTC, if there's good science and you're going beyond it, the complaint's not going to say, you know what, there was good science up to a point, but they went farther than it should have. So that information doesn't tend to sort of appear in complaints. It's just once you're engaging with the FTC and you know what's going on, you sort of have that better understanding that if we cut the claims back 50%, maybe this would have been okay. Daniel, thanks for that insider perspective. Can you please bring us home? Let us know if there was anything else we haven't talked about in episodes one, two, and three that are worth mentioning in the new guidance. So there is so much in the new guidance, but there's a few things that jump at me that are just worth quickly flagging. Traditional use claims. These are sort of marketing claims that describe the traditional or historic use of a product. The FTC is is putting a marker down there that, look, if you're basically saying that a product has been traditionally used, that's okay. But once you start talking about what the actual usage is, that becomes misleading. And if there's a suggestion that a traditional use product has a health benefit, the FTC goes as far as saying to avoid any deceptive implication, you should have a disclosure that there is no scientific basis for the traditional use. Ouch. Stand out, be in close proximity. Yeah, really strong disclosure. So uh, traditional use, if you're making health claim about that, be very careful. Another thing that comes up, and you see this pops up in a number of FTC cases, sort of claims of FDA approval. It's often a bit of a throwaway count in a lot of the health claims, but if people are claiming their product, you know, is FDA certified, FDA established, FDA approved, unless that's really true, do not be saying that. And again, generally it doesn't form the basis of a full case, but it is often a throwaway count. And finally, the mirror image doctrine, again, raising the issue of, look, if you're writing a book and you're making health claims in it, that is generally fine. But once you're selling a product, if you're combining the book with a product, or if there's a product that is touting statements made in the book about it, 
that becomes advertising. So that concept of books, advertising, products, what's being sold, another really important issue that the FTC is always looking at. So look, it, it's incredibly important guidance in there, and there's a lot to digest. So Daniel, let's talk for a few minutes about these notice of penalty offense letters that the FTC more recently sent to, I believe it was 700 of America's finest advertisers to essentially put them on notice that for any violations of the health guidelines, that they would be subject to penalties. Why were these letters sent out? And what does this practically mean to companies who got a letter or to companies who didn't get a letter? So it's a really weird provision in the FTC statute. So I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on this a little bit. but what... Oh, something wonky at the <laughs> FTC? Exactly. Please, please, go for Go forth, Picard. Technically, it's not about violating the guidance document, but what it is about, if the FTC in administrative litigation has issued orders that have prohibited certain practices, for example, practices about it's, it's unlawful to misrepresent the health claims to a product, the FTC can then take that order from a litigated case and serve notice on other companies that this order exists. And even though it was against another company, if you violate this order, we can go after you for penalties, penalties and not redress. So that's what's going on here. There are a number of FTC cases, some of which we've talked about, where the FTC has challenged health claims and has had findings that a deceptive act to make false claims about that. And the FTC is now serving 700 companies with these letters, which puts them on notice of these prior orders. And now the FTC can theoretically go after these companies if they make deceptive health claims for a number of different products. So the parameters of this legal authority, just to be very clear, it is not a tool that's been used often. It has not been litigated about often. And there are lots of questions about how it can be used, whether it can be used in certain contexts, how specific you have to have the, the original finding with the conduct at issue. So look, it is unclear to me whether and to what extent they can use this tool. However, they're going to try to. So there'll be a lot of focus on the FTC. And I, I anticipate that we'll see cases down the road where they try to invoke this legal theory to seek penalties for health claims. So it ratchets up the issue. But again, I really do want to emphasize the jury is absolutely out on, on whether and how the agency can do this going forward. To my mind, these letters are, I mean, certainly a nuisance, certainly something scary for a CEO to get in her his mailbox. But we have a number of companies that live their lives under an FTC order, violations of which can beget penalties. And that certainly puts a thumb on the scale of things, but America's national advertisers generally understand and try to abide by the FTC guidance and guidelines anyway. So to my mind, these letters shouldn't necessarily mean a change in any behavior, but they just up the ante on the potential consequences for companies that come into the FTC's purview. Would you agree with that, Daniel? Totally agree. Look, a lot of this is post-AMG. The FTC has lost a big chunk of its ability to get money. And these letters are a vehicle that allows the FTC to do that. Now, what is always interesting about it, it's notice of penalty offenses. It's penalties 
only. So the money here cannot be used for redress. And, you know, in health claims, that's an area where traditionally the FTC would want to get money back to consumers. So there is a little bit of a disconnect between the remedy and, and what the FTC generally desires in these cases, but they'd much rather get some money than nothing at all. So to wrap it up, thank you so much for joining us if you've been here for episodes one, two, and three of our Ad Nauseam podcast to unpack these FTC health guides. We looked at in episode one, some of the history. In episode two, we dug into the science. In episode three, we tried to give you and everything else that the FTC said. But the bottom line is this guidance is really important. It's a great time for companies who do make health claims to step back, take a hard look at their claim substantiation process and make sure that it is in good shape. But otherwise, probably the health guidance is not necessarily new news for smart companies who are already making health claims and will continue to do so. And with that, thank you so much for participating in our series. And we look forward to welcoming you back to our next episode of Ad Nauseum. Thank you, Amy, Daniel, and Randy. If you have any questions for them, their contact information is in the show notes. For more information on the latest developments in ad law, visit our Ad Attorneys Law blog at www.adattorneyslawblog.com. That's A-D-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S-L-A-W-B-L-O-G.com. And check out all the Ad Nauseam episodes by subscribing to Baker Hosts wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.